Welcome to the Go and Teach Bible Study program presented by the Monta Vista Church of Christ in Phoenix, Arizona. We want to thank you for joining us today as we examine the truth of God's Word and the answers it holds to life's most important questions. If you have questions about this lesson or would like to study further, please contact us at montavistacoc.com. Now let's open our Bibles and study God's Word together. Thanks for tuning in to the Go and Teach radio program. My name is Ryan Goodwin. I preach for the Monte Vista Church of Christ that meets here in Phoenix, Arizona. If you have any questions about this program or about any biblical topic, then please reach out to our congregation, and we'd love to sit down and open up our Bibles together and study it out, get you the answers that you're seeking. Now, if you've got a Bible handy, open up to Matthew 19 and verse 30. This will serve as our introduction to the lessons we're going to learn about the kingdom of heaven as Jesus explains using parables in the following chapters. So in Matthew 19, verse 30, Jesus says this, Many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. The way to eternal life, to citizenship in the kingdom of heaven, is not through selfishness, arrogance, or pride, but as Jesus puts it here, through considering yourself last. That's sacrifice, That's humility. That's service. In a word, it's discipleship. We must turn ourselves away from every bit of deception and self-indulgence and accept the cross of shame, for it is only through humility that one can come to know the truth about the grace of God. Later on in Matthew chapter 20, beginning in verse 24, Hearing his disciples arguing with each other, Jesus called them to himself and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. It is not so among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many." Now, that was a difficult concept for his disciples to understand, let alone his enemies like the Pharisees, the scribes, or the chief priests in Jerusalem. So he had to explain the concept of the kingdom in parables, that is, short, interesting stories that have a point behind them, a moral, a lesson. Jesus knew that some concepts were just too difficult for people to understand, at least at the moment. So if he couldn't say them explicitly, then what he would do is implicitly teach those statements. He would find the back door, so to speak, using these interesting stories, these parables. So let's start in Matthew 20 and notice the first parable. And we're going to look at three parables today in our radio program that each teach us a lesson about the nature of the kingdom of heaven, God's kingdom. So Matthew 20, verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. When he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius for the day, that's one day's wage, he sent them into his vineyard. 
And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to those he said, You too go into the vineyard, and whatever is right I will give you. And so they went. Again, he went out about the sixth and the ninth hour and did the same thing. And about the eleventh hour, as in right near the end of the day, he found others standing and said to them, Why have you been standing here idle all day long? And they said to him in verse 7, Because no one hired us. He said to them, You too go into the vineyard. And when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call all the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each one received a denarius. Again, a denarius is just a unit of money that was one day's wage, a fair wage for an honest day of work. And when those hired first came, they thought that they would receive more. And... They also received each one a denarius. When they received it, they grumbled at the landowner, saying, These last men have worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden in the scorching heat of the day. Now, we'll hold off on the landowner's response here for just a minute. Now, it would have been common for employment arrangements to have been made in the manner that's seen in this parable. At a designated location in any village or town, all of the able-bodied men without full-time jobs would gather together and make themselves available to landowners who were in need of laborers for that day. In the parable, notice a few things about the owner of the vineyard. First, it's clear that he represents God. He's in charge of calling people to serve him, and he's also in control of the wage. He also owns the land. He is the master of his domain. The laborers and the owner all agreed to a set price, so there was no deception involved by either party. That's an important point to bring out, that when those who were hired at the very beginning of the day saw the 11th hour workers getting paid a full day's wage, maybe their first instinct was, or or their first reaction would be, hey, if this landowner's being so cool that he's going to pay a full day's wage for people who just worked an hour or so, maybe he's going to bump up my wage since I've been here since early morning. And they became indignant. They became bitter when they got paid a denarius, a single day's wage for a single day of work. They became angry at the landowner. They felt cheated. But why? Was that fair to the landowner? They all agreed on a price. They all agreed to a certain set price. There was no deception involved in this. Just as God makes the terms of the kingdom of heaven very clear to us. There's going to be nobody on the judgment day who faces their judgment and says, well, I couldn't have known, or or, you tricked me, or you didn't make it clear enough. The, The terms and the conditions of entrance into the kingdom were not made clear enough. Mark 16, 16 is perfectly clear. He who believes and is baptized shall be saved. He who does not believe shall be condemned. It, It really is as clear as that. It really is as clear as that. Now, throughout the day, the same opportunity for service is presented to even more people. Some of them arrived to the work all the way until there was very little daylight left. They were the 11th hour workers. Also notice from the parable that there's always more room for workers in the vineyard. That just because he hired a few at the beginning and a few couple hours into the day and a few halfway through the day, even at the 11th hour, there was still work to be done. There was still room for more workers. Great lesson then 
There is no limit to the number of people who can be saved. The kingdom of heaven is open to all and is always available as long as there's still daylight. Daylight in the sense of as long as you're alive, as long as you still have breath passing between your lips, you still have opportunity to serve God in his vineyard. Next, a problem arises at the end of the workday as you read in verses 8 through 12. This is when the owner distributes the same payment to all the laborers regardless of when they started working. The men who have been in the vineyard all day complain that this was unfair, that they should be given proper compensation for their work. There's a few points to think about along those lines. Indeed, a lesson that we can learn from this is that many people in the world can only find fault with God, even though they are offered what is more than fair. And I think, I think compared to the laborers in this, they, they got what was fair. They got a denarius, a day's wages for a day of work. Heaven is not the same way. Heaven is not the same way. An eternity of joy, of spiritual freedom, of constant life and light in the presence of God. My friends, there is no amount of work that we can do in this life that can earn that. Heaven is not a wage to be paid to those who earn it. Heaven is a marvelous gift. Salvation is a free gift. Grace, by its very definition, is a free gift we could never possibly deserve. So that's one thing that we need to keep in mind here in this story is they didn't have anything to complain about. They got a wage, a day's work and a day's wage. How much more then do we have nothing to complain about? How much more then should we be grateful to God that heaven isn't even something that we earned? It is so far beyond what we earned. But some people can only find fault. They're offered heaven. They're offered salvation. They're offered forgiveness. On God's terms, easy terms, fair terms, more than fair, beyond fairness. Trust me, you don't want to be treated fair by God because what would be fair would be condemnation given the enormity of our sin and our spiritual failure. So let's understand something, that this, this parable isn't necessarily directed toward those 11th hour workers because they didn't have a thing to complain about. <laughs> they were grateful that they had even just an hour of work. They were grateful that they were put to service in some way so that their day could not be seen as idle. And they received an entire day's wage for just an hour of work. They walked away with their denarius feeling very grateful. So maybe the point of this parable is not to look at those laborers, but the ones who showed up first. In fact, I think that's the whole point that Jesus is getting at here. Do we sometimes feel like the workers in this parable? Do we sometimes feel like when we've been a Christian for many, many years and we've put our time in and we've been faithful and we've been diligent and, and we've been there every Sunday, every Sunday at least that we're healthy and we've been there for every Bible class and we've volunteered for this job or that job or we've been involved in this kind of ministry over here. Do we sometimes feel like the laborers in there where we feel like I've been working for God all day long don't I deserve more recognition than the person who just showed up a few minutes ago? 
Don't I deserve more reward than the Christian who came to Christ very late in life? The the man or the woman who spent 60 years living in sin, doing whatever he felt like, living it up, indulging in the flesh. And then finally, at the end of his life, he discovers Christ. He's baptized, becomes a Christian. and, And you're telling me that that person gets the same reward in heaven as me? He was a sinner for 60 years, and I've been a saint for 60 years. Doesn't that warrant some kind of recognition? To get a sense of how God would answer that question, just keep reading the parable. Verse 13. Now he answered and said to one of them, Friend, and like how he calls him friend, that that the only one who sees any reason for conflict is the worker, not the landowner. He sees him still as friend. Friend, I am doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. But I wish to give to this last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I am generous? Thus the last shall be first, and the first shall be last. And he kind of wraps it up then with the same statement that he made back at the end of chapter 19, 19 verse 30. Indeed, no wrong had been done in a completely fair, and again, much more than fair, we need to point out, and lawful manner, both the laborer and the owner agreed on a denarius as the price for a day's worth of work. And is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? The answer, of course, is undeniable. It is lawful for this landowner to pay his laborers whatever he wants, regardless of when they were called to service. Or is your eye envious because I am generous? At the root of the problem is envy. These laborers weren't arguing with the owner because the wage discrepancy actually was unfair. They simply thought it was unfair because they wanted more. Instead of focusing their energy on their own work, they worried about everybody else. So instead of being grateful for a man who had come along and given them a day of work and a day of wages, they just grumbled. They just complained. Will the same thing happen to us when we get to heaven after the judgment day? When we get to heaven, are we going to look around and feel like saying, He made it in? You got to be kidding me. That guy made it into heaven? You mean after everything I've done, I'm just going to be right next door to that sinner over there, that man who spent his whole life in sin and came to Christ very late in the day. You mean I've got to share heaven with that? Now, I'm being silly, of course, because anybody who has that attitude about heaven, anybody who has that attitude about grace, mercy, forgiveness, anybody who has that attitude toward the sinner who's come to Christ— They're the one who's not going to be in heaven. They're the one who's going to miss out. Does not God have the right, as God, to give to anybody he wishes salvation? To be kind and generous, merciful, merciful beyond belief? Maybe this is one of the reasons why Paul talks about salvation or mercy in the same way. In Romans chapter 4... Verse 4, now to the one who works, his wage is not reckoned as a favor, but as what is due. 
But the one who does not work, that is, to the one who believes that salvation is by faith and not by works of merit, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. You know, when we believe that salvation is our wage for a life well done, when we believe we have earned heaven, we have really missed the point of heaven. And we've missed the point of this parable here in Matthew chapter 20. Heaven is not mine to distribute. Heaven is not mine to earn. Heaven is God's. Heaven is God's. Now let's go to chapter 21 and let's learn another lesson here about the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 21 and let's begin in verse 28. But what do you think? I like the way Jesus starts this. What do you think? Think about this for a minute. Ponder this. Let this roll around in your mind for a little while. What do you think? A man had two sons and he came to the first and said, son, go work today in the vineyard. And he answered and said, I will, sir. But he didn't end up going. And he came to his second son and said the same thing. But he answered at first and said, I will not. Yet afterward, he regretted it and did end up going. Which one of the two did the will of his father? And Jesus' listeners said, the latter. So Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that the tax gatherers and the harlots will get into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you didn't believe him. But the tax gatherers and the harlots did believe him, and you, seeing this, did not even feel remorse afterwards so as to believe him. So the difference in character between these two sons is obvious. One of them was willing to obey only in word, but not in deed. He said he would go. He made a promise, but then he didn't keep it. Maybe it was out of arrogance or forgetfulness or maybe just good old-fashioned laziness. But then the other son, who might have had a bit of a rebellious streak in him at first, ended up regretting that rebellion, that disobedience. And he did end up going. I think what Jesus is saying in modern vernacular would be, it's not how you start the journey, but how you end. God wants to see not words, not just fancy flowery language. He's not interested in just us saying things, making big promises, being willing to offer our services to him, but without actually following through. God wants action. Now, ideally, God wants the action without the rebellious streak. Ideally, God would want us to promise to obey and actually follow through. But given the choice between these two extreme sons, one who only spoke his obedience but didn't follow through with it, and the other one who mistakenly showed rebellion but ended up regretting it and working, given the choice between those two, God does want follow through. He wants people who are willing to repent, to feel sorry for what they've done, and to change their lives, rather than those who see religion as just an exterior obligation is nothing but a superficial thing. So Christ explains that the supposedly righteous people, those who spoke well but lived with very little substance, were not worthy to enter the kingdom of heaven. And even beyond that, Jesus indicates that prostitutes and tax collectors were more likely to make it in than them. A few things to think about. We need to be careful not to misapply this passage. Jesus is not saying that unrepentant sinners will go to heaven. 
He is not saying that someone who is actively practicing prostitution or somebody who is actively engaged in a career of corruption without any repentance, without any regret, without any change of action is going to make it into the kingdom. Rather than giving a free ticket to the prostitutes of the world, he actually means that they need to stop sinning. And that was the thing about that son. He said, I will not go. At first, in form, he seemed to be rebellious. He seemed to be arguing against his father. But he changed. He did repent. His actions reflected a repentant attitude. And like the rude son, the prostitutes and tax collectors of the world, people who commit sin, still need to repent and turn away from their evil ways. But there's more hope for a truly repentant person than for anybody who only claims to live righteously and doesn't believe that he needs repentance. Now, with the last few minutes, let's go to chapter 22 of Matthew and look at one more parable. Matthew chapter 22 and verse 1. So Jesus answered and spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unwilling to come. Again, he sent out other slaves, saying, Tell those who have been invited, I've prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fattened livestock. It's all butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. But they still paid no attention and went on their way. And in verse 7, The king was enraged. He sent armies, and he destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. Then he said to his slaves, The wedding is ready, but those who were invited were not worthy. So he commanded his slaves to go out to the highways and the byways and invite anybody that they found. And they went out there, and they invited everybody. In verse 10, they gathered together all they found, both evil and good. And the wedding hall was filled with dinner guests. So, in completely justifiable anger... This king sends his armies to destroy the insolent wedding guests. And will God not be equally justified, and even more so, when he returns in judgment and finds us ignoring him? When he finds that we have spent our lives ignoring the invitation, the call to come to the wedding feast. I love that the kingdom here, heaven, is described as a wedding feast. It is a joyful occasion. It's a joyful occasion where everybody is welcome, where there is always room, where we could go to the highways and the byways and invite everybody, and there would be a place at the table for them. What an atmosphere. What an atmosphere of jubilation, of encouragement. What a joyful thing to be invited to attend this heavenly, eternal function. And what an honor. Now it says the wedding hall was filled with guests, both evil and good, in verse 10. We need to be careful not to misinterpret that. This isn't saying that evil people will be welcomed into heaven. What it says is that evil people can hear the invitation and change their lives and be welcomed as a guest at the table of the king. There's always that opportunity to change. In fact, The very end of the parable even points out that an evil person who remains evil, who stays evil, who is unrepentant, who comes to God unprepared for judgment, he will not be welcomed and he'll be cast out. 
When the king came to look over his dinner guests, he saw there was a man who was not dressed in wedding clothes. Clothes, by the way, that would have actually been provided for those who were too poor. So this man had no excuse. If he couldn't afford nice clothes for the wedding, there were nice clothes available to him that he could have had. In his fury, the king tells his servants to cast the man out. The man is cast out into a place that's described as a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus concludes by saying, For many are called, but few are chosen. Many are called, but few are chosen. Few are chosen because few people accept it on God's terms. You have the opportunity, every time you open up the word, to let it sink into your soul, to absorb truth, to listen to its message and obey it. If there's anything at all that you need to study further in order to become a Christian, if there's any obstacle that prevents that, then please get over that obstacle. Study with us and heed the call of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thank you for joining us today. To hear this program again, please visit our website at montavistacoc.com. If you're in the Phoenix area, come visit us at the Monta Vista Church of Christ. We're located at 2202 North 40th Street. We have Bible classes for all ages each Sunday morning at 9.30 and again on Wednesday night at 7. For more information about the Monta Vista Church of Christ or to request a personal Bible study, please go to montavistacoc.com. Hallelujah.